Oh, hey there. Welcome to the Nerdy About Nature podchat series, where I sit down with folks from different backgrounds and experiences to chat all about things pertaining to nature. My name is Ross, and this podcast is an extension of a passion project I started called Nerdy About Nature, which also includes tons of fun educational videos all over Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, and basically everywhere else on the internet. Now, all that I create here serves as a means to inspire, educate, and engage folks with the outdoor world so that we can all become better stewards of it, have a little bit more fun when we're out enjoying it, and work to create a more inclusive, diverse, equitable, and just future for each and every one of us in this world that we all share. Because nature, it sure is pretty neat, and I think we should keep it that way. So come on, let's go get nerdy. Come and take a nature walk with me, we're gonna check out some really cool trees, we're gonna hang around and talk about all those things in nature that we can't live without. Let's go get nerdy, yeah, let's get nerdy about nature. Nerdy, yeah, let's get nerdy about nature, baby. Nerdy, yeah, let's get nerdy about nature. Come on, let's get nerdy about nature. What is up, nerds? So today on the podcast, I'm bringing back a familiar face for her third appearance here, Julia Huggins, to talk with you all about some more microbes. Now, if you haven't heard Julia before, she is a forest ecologist and microbe specialist who recently just wrapped up her PhD studies, and you should for sure check her out on the previous episodes I've recorded with her, uh, PodChat 6, which is all about microbial forest ecology, and PodChat 10, which is all about oceanic microbes and climate change. Now this time we sat down to chat about the more common microbes that you might find in your everyday life, things that you might see frequently wherever you are but not necessarily know what they are or what's going on and I promise you it is going to blow your mind. Today's episode is brought to you in part by Hoka and their brand new versatile hiker shoe, the Anacapa 2. Now the folks at Hoka were kind enough to send me a pair of these kicks a couple months ago and they've become my go-to shoe whenever I'm heading out for a hike or a romp in the woods. You know, they've got all sorts of the standard high quality bits and bobs you'd expect from a shoe today um, from Vibram Soles for super good traction, a lightweight build and a Gore-Tex membrane which is going to keep the water out and your feet dry. Uh, but my favorite part about them is the fact that they're made from all sorts of innovative and sustainably focused materials. You know, all the plastic here for example is made from recycled sources they've got a liner that's made from soybean oil and midsoles here which are made from sugarcane which is all pretty cool now are they 100% perfectly sustainable? No, but nothing in this world is perfect, and at least Hoka is trying to do the right thing here by building things for a better tomorrow. Now, I would still say that the best pair of hiking shoes are the ones that you already own, but if the ones that you own are at the end of their lifespan and beyond repair and you're looking for a replacement, then I would seriously take a gander at the Anacapa 2s. You will not be bummed. So why does dirt crack up in certain plate-like ways? Why does tidal mud turn black when exposed to air? What's the deal with that oily shine you may see on ponds and puddles when you're taking a walk? You know, we breathe oxygen, plants breathe CO2, but what sorts of things can microbes breathe? And can life exist in forms that are totally foreign to how we understand life to be on this planet? This episode tackles all of these burning questions and more and is guaranteed to change the way that you look at the world around you thanks to all the little things that you can't actually see. So let's hear what Julia's got to say about it all. It is so much better. This is a much better spot. Take two. Yeah, except that you're going to get eaten alive. Yeah, it's a sacrifice. We uh, This is the second time we've tried recording this because the other spot was just too dang windy. There were some great microbes in the soil, but uh, yeah, the wind was just too unworkable. So we've opted for a place kind of uh, in the estuary still. We're in the Squamish estuary, traditional unceded Squamish territory. And... Um, 
yeah, a little bit bushier, a little bit buggier. Um, I am an easy target, but I'm willing to get destroyed for the sake of this podcast. For the sake of microbes. Yes, for the sake of microbes. Should um, we start from the top again? Yeah. Okay. Um, so, like we preface last time we uh went out for drinks the other night and we were talking oh look at how bloody that one is damn it um so we were, <laughs> went out for drinks the other night we were just catching up and uh, talking about microbes and we decided that we needed to record a third podcast you're my third guest on like i, I don't even think i have 20 episodes yet and i've had you on this is now the third time can't <sighs> get enough of the microbes high accolade it's it's the microbes and i'm just uh the vessel yeah <laughs> The vessel for the microbial well. Just a microbe advocate. (laughs) So, um, if you haven't listened to Julia before, um, we have an episode on like microbes and forest ecosystems. Forest succession and the role they play and why our forests look the way they do. Exactly. And then we have one on ocean microbes. Yeah. Focus also kind of on like climate change and the oceans and stuff, but yeah. And how important microbes are. Totally. In all that. Um, and today Everything. we're talking about microbes in our daily lives. So just like seeing seeing microbes around in places that you might not know are microbes, like just different things. Like, heck, I mean, before we started recording, we were going through the mud and um, I was learning so much just about things that I always just had assumed were the way they were because of the way they were but i didn't know that it's all it's all because of microbes it's crazy well that's the coolest thing about them is they're everywhere and everything and so a lot of the stuff that you just used to seeing and you're like that's just the way that thing is Mm -hmm. you it's like in fact yes that's true that is just the way that it is because they're literally everywhere and everything which is wild yeah and you, you can't you can't see them, but you can see the results of their work. Exactly, which is what I really like to point out to people is they're invisible, they're everywhere, and yet to the naked eye. Yeah. yeah. Yes, that's true. Um, and yet they're not you, technically invisible. But. You can see the evidence of what they are doing because they're so active and they are shaping everything in the world all the time. And if you know what they are doing then you know what to look for and you start realizing that the sign of them is everywhere, like on everything. And it's funny because you were like, well, what, what should we talk about? I was like, I don't know, give me a topic. Microbes are involved. Right. Because that's kind of how I start to see them is like every piece of the world that you interact with, especially outdoors, is at some in some way microbial. Yeah. So let's start from the top here. What is a microbe? A microbe is short for microbio or micro, microbial, which means micro is small and bio life, and so tiny life. And uh, it, usually the cutoff for this is something that you need a microscope to be able to see it. Um, and so there's there are tiny multicellular organisms that can be considered microbes, um, you know, like tardigrades. You know tardigrades? Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So like You know tardigrades. You said you know tardigrades <laughs> and you held about 3 <laughs> inches between your fingers as if like Well, compared oh yeah, to tardigrade, a micro- like a 3-inch tardigrade. <laughs> compared to a microbe, they're massive, right. okay? Um and you can like almost see tardigrades with your eyes, but you do need a microscope to see them. So that's kind of, you could maybe consider tardigrade like a microbe, but most of the time we mean like single-celled organisms are very, very small ones. And we're, we tend to be thinking about photosynthesizing ones for the most part, right? Most people tend to, but the cool thing about microbes is actually they do dozens of different types of metabolism. So they don't all photosynthesize necessarily. They can do 
all kinds of crazy chemistry that more complex organisms can't do. Um, in fact, almost all complex organisms can only do two things. We can either breathe oxygen and eat carbon, like that's what you and I do, or photosynthesize like plants, right? So any large organisms that you can see are doing one of those two things, basically. And then all the other chemistry on the planet, all the other transformations that happen that are biologically mediated are almost all done by small, simple organisms, usually single-celled organisms. And so like what type of processes are these? Oh, there's so many that I'll give you like a high level and we will probably come back into them in more detail. But like, so all of the planet basically runs on these, these biogeochemical cycles, which I talked a little bit about in the oceans episode for anyone who wants like a recap there, but basically, um, oxygen, nitrogen, phosphorus, carbon, sulfur, iron to a degree and manganese to a degree. Um, and then there's sort of a few other elements that kind of are recycled throughout um, the living environment. But basically those elements I just named, the oxidation and the reduction of those substances drive almost all of life. And so it's basically like oxidizing things, reducing things, oxidizing, reducing over and over again, trading off between nitrogen, giving some to sulfur, taking from sulfur, making methane, and like um, cyclically oxidizing and reducing these compounds is what drives all of the biological cycles on the planet. And we need those processes to happen to maintain a balance on the planet. All of them, huh? Ooh, that was disgusting. <laughs> was oh my God. <laughs> Sorry. If anybody couldn't see that, she had a mosquito on her so and bad. I flicked it off and it exploded <laughs> in blood. Um, very gruesome scene. So yeah, when you say like, like we talked the other night about photosynthesis and like photosynthesis, we always tend to think of as happening with plants where you're converting um, sugar and carbon dioxide or sorry, you're converting using you're converting carbon dioxide uh, and water into sugar and oxygen through the act of photosynthesis but there are other types of photosynthesis that occurs to help break down all those elements that you mentioned yeah so um you don't have to use water and produce oxygen even though that is the by and far most common one that we think of and know of because it's what all the plants are doing you can photo you you a microbe can photosynthesize with um, a variety of different compounds, and some of them can photosynthesize with iron, for example. Like they can actually oxidize m iron metals and turn them into oxidized compounds like rust, but using light energy to do that. So when something is oxidized, what does that mean? Chemically. It means that you've stripped the electrons away from the compound. Is that done with oxygen? Well, commonly, and that's why the term is oxidized, because oxygen is really good at oxidizing stuff. Oxygen wants electrons, and so it strips electrons off of like anything it interacts with. So, yeah, that's why we call it oxidized, but it just means you've stripped the electrons away from something. Whereas reduced means you've dumped electrons back onto the compound. 
Are, are there microbes that reduce things as well? Yes. In okay. fact, anytime you oxidize something, you're reducing something else. Right. Because you're taking the electrons from one and moving them to the other. Yeah, exactly. And so it's the transfer of the electrons moving from one com compound that has excess electrons and moving them to another compound that wants the electrons. And that movement is where a lot of the energy that fuels life comes from. And you can think of it, I mean, like you think of um, electricity running through a wire or through, you know, an electric cable, and then you use that energy to do things. It's really kind of the same idea. You're pumping electrons through, in this case, it's through compounds in the cell, but it's that transfer of electrical energy that is fueling life. And that's the same for in our bodies too. Like we're doing that. We're oxidizing carbon and we're reducing oxygen. And then we, that transfer of electrons creates the energy we need to run all of the, mm -hmm. the machinery in our bodies. And so when we think about life falling into those two main categories that you said before, either like breathing air and, and eating things or photosynthesizing for energy, mm -hmm. there's all this other life that does it in different means. Yeah through different elements and compounds. Exactly. So you can either be a phototroph or a chemotroph. And so when I was talking before about the ones that we're familiar with, like the animals um, that eat carbon and breathe oxygen, we're chemotrophs. And all that means is we get our energy out of chemical reactions. And then there's phototrophs, which are like when we think of them as plants, they get their energy from light, phototroph. Troph means to eat, photolight. So they, they're light eaters, whereas we're chemical eaters, chemotrophs. But then microbes can be phototrophs and chemotrophs in so many different ways. So you could have chemotrophs that eat sulfur and breathe nitrogen instead of eating carbon and breathing oxygen. You could have organisms that are chemotrophs that eat iron and breathe oxygen, or you could have organisms that eat methane and breathe nitrogen or oxygen or any of these other combinations. Crazy. Yeah. And then you can have um, phototrophs. There's microbes that are phototrophs, meaning they're light eaters, but they use other compounds instead of water and oxygen. They might use iron, like I was saying before. They can use light energy to oxidize iron or sulfur. Like they can, you can photosynthesize with sulfide, that like rotten egg smell. There are microbes that can use that compound and light energy and photosynthesize. Wild. It's so cool. It's so cool. And that's why I think microbes are so neat is they can do all of this stuff that has to happen. Like I was saying, all those cycles that we need to stay in balance, those things, we need them to continually get get recycled. But we, we, the bigger, all bigger life and the plants, we only like touch like two of those cycles and everything else to keep everything else in balance we were, the microbes run all of those. Why Why did a majority of life on this planet go in the direction of that we have now? Like, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, you, why aren't we all breathing methane? Yeah, so you get more energy out of the reaction between carbon and oxygen than most of the other examples that I gave. And so... Most life on the planet, well, all life originally started out not using oxygen because there wasn't any available. 
Um, and when the capacity for the type of photosynthesis that produces oxygen evolved, that changed everything on the planet because suddenly now there's like this really high energy compound oxygen floating around that allows that allowed other organisms to start using that for more energy rich reactions. And at first it was no good because oxygen is also toxic um, to things that are not used to using it. So it was a big shakeup on the planet because a lot of stuff died or was not able to work well in the presence of oxygen, but life evolves. And over time, life found ways to utilize all this oxygen and um, get that extra energy out of that reaction. And that is one of the ideas about where more complex life came from, or like how it enabled more complex life to evolve. That's not a set thing. There are people I know who, if they're listening to this, their colleagues of mine would be like, well, that's not for sure. So it's still up for debate. And like, there's a lot of work because this is all like ancient history. We don't have like fossil records really to work off of. There are microbial fossils, but like basically it's a lot of speculation and using other things as indicators of that. But yeah, so I don't know what, whatever that mechanism was that allowed bigger life to evolve. Definitely it's the most energy intense or like energy efficient reaction in terms of like getting really big. And so to dominate the planet and take over and become the things that we think of as life, the best way to do that is to use the the most energy efficient reaction, mm-hmm. which is the oxygen one. Yeah, I think that's that's a concept that like the chemical processes that change the atmosphere that we live in is a really difficult one, I think, for a lot of people to comprehend, myself included. Because it's like when you think about the origins of life, you know, you hear about it, it's like, oh, it's like single cell um, algae and stuff like in shallow waters and pools. But like that was also in a world where there wasn't like the atmosphere was not there was no oxygen in it. Like nope. there was no breathing. There was no, like when we say photosynthesizing, it was like, yeah, it was photosynthesizing, but not in the standard way that we think of photosynthesis today. Yeah. No. So photosynthesis literally just means using light and you could be changing any compound into something else, just right. using light energy to make that happen. From the sun, the UV rays. Yeah. yeah. It was only over time that then like the ability to photosynthesize with water evolved. And when you photosynthesize with water you produce oxygen. And before that, there was nothing pumping oxygen into the atmosphere. And so the atmosphere was mostly nitrogen as it still is. I mean, it's still 80% nitrogen more or less, but there were other compounds in the atmosphere, like more methane um, um, and other like reduced gases and stuff like that. So that early photosynthesis that was happening, it was taking place in water, but water was just like the the place, the substrate for them to exist in to like hold cell structure. Mm-hmm. But the processes was was happening on like metals on the like in the rock and stuff. Yeah, or just dissolved metals in the water. So um, metals don't have to be solid. You can have metal ions um, that are soluble and floating around in the water, kind of like salts. Um, and so iron, this is a stupid question, but is salt a metal? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Fucking wow. Yeah. Like sodium, like, so like sodium, I guess I could have assumed that I'm not a chemistry guy, but yeah. There's a lot of this stuff that's like really not, that's not obvious until you learn it. I guess it it conducts. So that's, so that's different. 
Oh, okay. I thought, I thought that was like one well, of the keys, the key things about being a metal is that it could. Well, that's true for like solid metals that like it can, like you, most solid metals like conduct electricity through them. But when like a salt is dissolved in water, it's more about then there's like ions in the water that allow elect, like electron transfer. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So it's a little different than the way that the like electricity is conducted through a metal wire but gotcha. it does have to do with like the ionic charge in the electron transfer okay. so it's it's related it's just okay it's like really i'm sorry you're stupid you're trying to trick sorry. me to just looking like a nerd no, on this no I'm, I'm genuinely <laughs> curious and then yeah i feel like my questions are stupid <laughs> no I'm, I'm just chemistry nerd over here um yeah so when it comes to like seeing microbes around us in our daily lives seeing them everywhere what are some of the most common ways that we could see that like when we're out for a walk so there's just so many little things that you're probably really used to seeing um that are actually the product of a microbial reaction or a reaction mediated by microbes that you don't even you're you're so used to seeing them but you don't even realize that they're there um one that like we'll probably try to find some evidence of here that's an easy one to see because it stands out if you know what you're looking for um, is like reddish orange deposits on things or like colors on things. If you're walking through a pond and you see a marshy area that has like a reddish orange layer of mud on the surface or like um, have you ever noticed like plant leaves sometimes that are in the water kind of have like a reddish film on them. So these are this is all basically rust it's oxidized iron that is in this aquatic environment and it's coating the surfaces of usually either the top layer of the mud or the plant leaves or whatever like sticks and stuff that are in there and it's a coating of rust that is usually almost always the product of or a microbe is involved in the production of that rust and the rust is iron that's dissolved in the water. It's iron that was dissolved in the water and it was floating around in the reduced form. So like chemically reduced when it had lots of extra electrons on it. Okay. It was dissolved in the water and floating around like a salt, basically. And then the microbes used that. Um, they basically ate that metal ion and oxidized it. And when you oxidize iron, you form rust. There's lots of different versions of rust, so it's not a single compound, but basically um, oxidized iron makes um, solid little, we call them precipitates, like little solid pieces that don't stay dissolved in the water anymore. So it floats out of the water column. So yeah, it settles down and it coats things. And that's why you get that oh. orange film all over like the surface of the mud or on the surface of the plant or, or other places. And so that's little tiny particles that are just like the byproduct of a microbe chomping on some metal that's dissolved in the water. Right. Yeah. I always thought it was like a, a mold or a slime or something. I remember growing up and like seeing that because there, there are, I, I feel like you always see it like coming out of like um, storm drain pipes and stuff like or frequently like out of metal tubes. And I'm assuming that's like kind of where the the iron comes from maybe often yeah it can come from the metal tube itself it can sometimes just be sometimes there's a lot of um metal in groundwater or like 
in ponds or lakes where the water is still um, and you don't get a lot of mixing, then the lower parts of that water are low oxygen or completely anoxic. And when there's no oxygen around, that's when you get the dissolved iron in the water. And so when that dissolved water then um, like leaks out like at a, like a spring or like the edge of a pond or a pipe that's like leaking groundwater from underneath something, all of these places are where anoxic water that has dissolved iron in it gets exposed to the air and then the microbes can use that oxygen that's just newly exposed to the water. They use the oxygen to eat the iron, and that is the like the the location of where the precipitate forms. And so it's a lot of these like things happen on the interface. They happen in the interaction space where something that was one way is now changing into a new condition, and then the meeting of those different environments is where the reactions often happen. So in, in this case, it's like where the iron is in an environment that's free from oxygen. Then when it gets exposed to oxygen, that gives the microbes in the soil or in the mix the ability to convert that iron into... Yeah. Or to, to oxidize it. And what's really neat is that this would happen anyway. I'm hanging on for... I'm just like... You're doing great. Gripping on to what you're saying. Okay. Yeah. No, that's exactly right. So, and that's why... So when you say like the iron only exists in the anoxic waters, it's because if the iron was in the oxen... Like the water with the oxygen dissolved in it as well, the microbes would be able to do that in the water? Yep. Okay. They would do that. And they do. Like it doesn't happen immediately the instant it touches the oxygen. Right. Which it is... Just, that allows for the process to happen. Exactly. Yeah. And that's actually a really important piece of it because if it happened immediately, then microbes wouldn't be able to use the reaction because it would just happen before they could even make use of it, right? And so oxygen will oxidize iron on its own. You don't have to have a microbe. And that's why like a car rusts over time. Yeah. Although sometimes microbes can accelerate like right. rusty objects, rusting faster. Interesting. But they will hap it will happen on its own. So I want to be clear here, like for anyone who's listening, like, wait a second, I thought oxygen you know, could rust things on its own. Yes, it can. But the thing is, it's kind of slow. And because it's slow, it allows microbes to get in there and make use of the slowness and they can make it happen faster. And that's why they get to use it is they can sort of accelerate, um, they catalyze, to use a chemistry, fancy chemistry word, they catalyze the reaction so it happens more rapidly than it would happen on its own and they then get to sort of use the energy before you know nature runs its course and, and oxygen would just do it anyway right so it's like gonna happen one way or another they're just kind of popping in there being like just making it happen yeah. quicker. yeah they they take advantage of the opportunity interesting which is something a lot of microbes do they like really take advantage of where things are set up just right for some process to happen. And there's this idea in microbiology that like, it's called, it's like everything is everywhere, but the environment selects. And so the idea is that um, the microbes that do these processes, there are some of them everywhere. Like they're kind of all around all the time. And then when the opportunity arises for the reaction that they would do, then they they bloom. They start reproducing. They take off. They're like, yes, this is our thing. This is what we are 
set up and ready to do. And they take advantage of that moment with the right conditions arising. And then they grow and there's more of them. And then that's where you would find them. Because otherwise, like, how would they so, get there, right? So that's, they're, just, they're just everywhere. They're just dormant until they have the right conditions to... Yeah, exactly. And so by being huh. such a tiny organism, you can be dormant. You can also, like, spread more easily. You know, you can get in the air and, like, there's microbes in the air and they can they can be transferred large distances in air currents and stuff like that. And so it's it's it almost works like opposite of the way we think of biodiversity with larger organisms of like right. things like belong to this environment. They're endemic or, you know, like they only can be found in one place. The smaller you get, the more um, like universal you become basically yeah. as a microbe. And and like, OK, so when you said like they can spread in the air, like I was thinking like, oh, is that like a a strategy like a reproductive strategy in a sense but like even then like they're too small to like you know i'm thinking about like trees having uh wind dispersed spores or something like mm -hmm. that's like a whole tree that has like one tiny section of it that disperses little tiny spores everywhere yeah which is different because a microbe is a single cell it's not like it has like a certain like appendage or feature that like produces a ton and like sends it out yeah but no. they're, they're so small that they're able to just be like whipped around by air currents and transferred yeah which is it's wow. it's kind of a bizarre mystery to be honest and that's the best way that microbiologists can make sense of it is that how else does an iron oxidizing microbe get to be in the right place where before there was no iron there you know you, you just you can just basically anywhere you could put out a pot of iron rich water and expose it to oxygen and you would be able to enrich for iron oxidizing microbes even if you didn't put them in that pot and so the whole idea is you know we continually see these microbes that can do these they can make use of the opportunities that arise and they show up as soon as the opportunity is there the microbe is there so how did it get there well it must have already been around kind of just sort of waiting for the opportunity the opportunity so okay so if you have i'm just have all these weird scenarios in my head now <laughs> yeah. so if you have a you have a bucket of water that has dissolved iron in it Will that reaction happen naturally, even without microbes, just the yep. same way it would with the uh, Yeah, it will happen on, on its own car. eventually. But okay. if you leave it open to the air and you see rust starting to form, right. it, you can pretty much guarantee that there's microbes involved. So when you're walking down the street or walking in the forest and you see like a little trickle of a creek yeah. and there's all that orange like gunky algae stuff deposited that's like an indication that there's a lot of metal in that water that has been broken down likely by the microbes in mm -hmm. the water yeah and it's sometimes could be an algae there are some that are kind of orangey colored but most of the time if it's that really like red orange rich color it's usually an iron deposit and that is only a bacteria can do that well, and, and I'm thinking like here, so we're in, again, the estuary, mm -hmm. um, and I feel like this is a really common thing you see in estuaries and tidal flats, like mud flats, like the, the, that really thick orange yep. mud. But then when you walk through it, it's like gray right underneath. Yeah. So it's like only on the top layer, like that's exactly. iron from the water. Yeah, that's iron from the water. And the reason it's only on the top, like you're saying. It's because it's settled. 
Well, it, in, and it needs to be in contact with oxygen to do this reaction, right? So in mud, as soon as you go below the surface, the oxygen doesn't penetrate deep into the mud. And so you have to have um, both iron and oxygen together to make this reaction happen. Um, and specifically, you need the reduced iron, right? Once it's oxidized, once it's turned into rust, you can't react it more right right so you need the reduced iron which is seeping from like the groundwater or from deeper in the mud or somewhere like that and as that seeps toward the surface where the oxygen is and the oxygen from the air or from overlying water meet you get this point where the reduced iron can react with the oxygen and those iron oxidizing microbes can then live right there on that little tiny surface layer Oh, that's crazy. Mm -hmm. So when you walk through it and you leave those gray footprints, like kicked up the mud, you're essentially creating new habitat for those microbes to then colonize. Yeah, exactly. And you can even, it can happen fairly quickly. Like you can, you know, be walking around somewhere and come back and like that dark black mud that's underneath is reduced iron. And when it's exposed to the air, you might come back like, I don't know, um, a, a bit later and find that 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 footprint you made is now a rusty orange color. And that's because the stuff in the footprint has been changed, not because stuff has dropped on top of it and like settled on top of it. Yeah, no, because that exposed that, that mud, that black mud is not going to stay. So the black mud is a combination of reduced iron and um, sulfide, like a sulfur, that eggy smell. And so that, compound makes this black material and that stuff once it's exposed to the air the oxidation starts happening and so like i was saying it's going to happen on its own anyway you don't have to have a microbe but because microbes are everywhere and take advantage of when these opportunities arise you pretty much guarantee that there's a microbe in that space that's going to start utilizing that reaction and accelerating it so it's going to happen more quickly than it would happen on its own so just like there are photosynthesizing plants that create oxygen and then there are animals that breathe oxygen and release CO2, yeah. there are also microbes that will reduce yes. that iron back to iron. Yes, the rust. Back to, yeah. Yeah. So they'll take the rust and reduce that back to iron. Yes. And so any reaction that goes one way can be reversed. And this is actually, when I was talking about the essential role that microbes play in keeping everything in balance it's the reversing the reactions that's really valuable that creates the balance otherwise it's just a one-sided thing yeah and so you know saying oxygen is just going to oxidize this stuff anyway even if microbes don't get involved and if that was the case we would just live in a rusty world you know we would have um everything would be um oxidized because because oxygen is pervasive, it's everywhere, it's 20% of the atmosphere, and and you just would go in one direction. And so the thing that microbes can do that's really valuable for keeping everything in balance is they can reverse those processes. The thing is, they can't reverse the reaction when there's still oxygen around. So... Okay, so it has to happen anaerobically, anaerobically. Like in the earth or something. Yeah, usually in um, stagnant water, so a wetland, swamps, um, water in mud, so like different layers deep in the mud, um, anywhere that, where there's water, but like in a stagnant way so that 
there's not mixing with the yeah. with the atmosphere yeah. the deeper layers are going to become anoxic and then in those places when the oxygen has run out that's where these microbes shine because they can do all kinds of stuff that couldn't happen in the presence of oxygen or they can't compete when oxygen is around basically but once the oxygen's run out and everything else can't live because like everything else needs oxygen and so the things that need oxygen can't live in that space and the microbes they're like this is our space now we get to do whatever we want and they use these other oxidized compounds they breathe them instead of oxygen basically so like we breathe oxygen and use it to to oxidize things but when you don't have oxygen left you can breathe other compounds so you can breathe nitrogen compounds you can breathe rust like oxidized iron can become the new thing that takes the place of oxygen and you breathe it. And when you do that, you reduce it back down to mm -hmm. not rust, like regular mm -hmm. iron, reduced iron. And that's what, when you talk about the black mud deep in like mud, when you dig down, yeah, that wasn't like black mud that was deposited there through like fluvial processes or anything. It's like no. that was just mud that was anoxic. So the iron was able to. Yeah. That's incredible. So this is another thing we've we've all seen it. Like you do, you dig into like sand or mud or something, and the surface looks like light brown or some other color, green even. And then and this happens in a forest as well. I'm assuming. Yeah, right? definitely. Because I've definitely like dug pits in the forest, and like or you're going to plant something, and like you get down like past the kind of organic matter humus layer into the soil, and it's like starts out pretty brown and rich, and then like it can very quickly go go black, and that's usually iron. So if it's if it's kind of like waterlogged soil, again, it usually has to be a place where there's a lot of moisture because having like stagnant water is the best way to Yeah, I'm thinking like floodplain, like floodplain soils. Yeah. Yeah. Because if it's if it's like fluffy soil, then there's air can kind of get in the cracks and then it's all oxidized. Right. And you're just dealing with like its own wonderful thing. I love fungus and like soil rot right. and like that stuff's amazing and cool. And like in insects way. and worms will like yeah. dig holes down and like expose all that to oxygen. Yeah. And that's yeah. a wonderful, also very cool microbial world, but that's all the oxic, that's all aerobic oxygen based right. life going on in that soil. Crazy. But if you have sticky, muddy, wet, um, waterlogged soil and you go a little bit below the surface, then you get two processes happening um well nitrogen happens first and we're, we'll just skip that one after you run out of oxygen and after you run out of nitrogen then you can use iron and you can use sulfur and so both of these compounds basically oxidized iron like rust or sulfur sulfate which is like a salt that's in the ocean it's everywhere sulfate both of those compounds microbes can breathe them and use them instead of oxygen and when they do that they make reduced iron and they make sulfide that eggy smell and when sulfide and iron come into contact with each other reduced iron and sulfide they form a compound called iron sulfide um really unique really yeah, so original clever. yeah um <laughs> that uh is this black color over time that compound if you like compress it and like go through all these geological processes you can form pyrite which is fool's gold 
which is iron sulfur. It's it's basically the precursor to that. Like you're you're starting to form that mineral. How does that happen? So that's like the iron. Don't sulf- ask me the geology part. But, but it, it's like essentially like a metamorphic rock. You have the iron sulfate deposits from like these mud flats that like somehow get compacted and settled down into the earth's core and heated up and melted into something different into fool's gold. I don't know the details of exactly what happens in the geological transformation, but you start out with iron and reduced sulfur deposits. And once those are transformed geologically, you can produce fool's gold. And so it doesn't just like crystallize immediately into little tiny fool's gold crystals in the mud. But when you have um, fool's gold, you know that that compound is the is literally chemically iron and sulfide together and those usually form when microbes are depositing iron and sulfur together in anoxic sediments the mud um, marshes places like that and that is that black goop that you that you see when you dig it up when you dig into the mud and pull up a wad of beautiful Black goop. Black goop. <laughs> wow, that's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, I need to have a geologist on sometime because those processes um, amaze me, and I haven't really studied or looked into any of that since high school. Yeah, um, it's really cool stuff. And I like, as a, a biogeochemist, I do have to kind of interact with a lot of the earth processes, but right. when it comes to the details of them, I'm not going to pretend that I can right. speak to it if officially fair yeah um where else can we see uh microbes kind of in work what other what other ways can we see them oh my goodness they're they're kind of just like all over the place once you start realizing that these things that you think are just dead surfaces are potentially alive but they're so small that you can't see them so you don't know that they're alive you realize that almost every type of environment is is potentially teeming with life so like um you know one of my favorite examples is like a dead log is you know you look at it you're like oh it's dead it's more alive now than it was when it was alive than it was when it was alive there are more living cells in a dead log than there are when it's a living tree because Dang. of how much how much microbial life is going on <sighs> in that dead tree and it could be fungal tissues that are decomposing it and bacteria that are living on the byproducts of the fungal degradation and also degrading the old fungal tissue itself and then there's um you know other bacteria that are living on the byproduct of the first bacterium and there's just a whole plethora of like tiny insects crawling around doing stuff too and so it's just like it's so alive even though to the visible eye it just is like it's a dead log but you don't appreciate that until you start thinking about the fact that these transformations are happening. And so that's to me always the indicator is if a change is happening, there's probably little invisible changers involved in making that change start to happen. And those, those changers are the microbes because they do the chemistry that the rest of us can't do. When you look at a dead log, like, are there specific things you can, like, point out that are that are 100% done microbially and it's not like a fungus or anything like that? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I personally consider fungi in the world of microbes. Um, 
they are like multicellular and then they make mushrooms and you can see the mushroom, but most of the fungus itself is just the little strands that are um, invisible to the, to the, to the eye without a microscope. Um, and so, you know, you, if you find a piece of wood on a rotting log and you squeeze it and it's kind of like spongy and squishy, then that's a, a change from what it was like before. And that is usually started by a fungus um, but then the, the bacteria come in and they are going to be eating all the byproducts of what the fungus do, break Create, down. Yeah. yeah. So they're just, the fungi are breaking apart things, but they don't, they don't completely digest it. And so they, they release a lot of small carbon compounds that then all these bacteria come in and they can use them and they actually, you know, respire them all the way to CO2 and you lose biomass and that's why it becomes physically lighter. So like rotting wood when it dries out is like really light because there's all these holes through it and the wood is literally like evaporated. Right. It has structure, but like the substance is kind of lacking. Yeah. And it's because all of that carbon that was embedded in these big complex carbon compounds has been turned into CO2 and released as gas and there's just less of it there. And that's the combined effort of fungi and bacteria. Okay, so before we started recording, we did a little like show and tell around the estuary here. We were like looking at a couple of different things. Mm -hmm. um, one was this dry cracking mud where the surface of the mud was cracking up. Really common. I mean, I see it like all here. So it's like kind of like a muddy tidal flat. The tide was out. The mud gets exposed to sunlight. It cracks up. But you're saying the way that it was cracking up was indicative of microbes being in that. Yeah. So why don't you tell me about that? Yeah, so <laughs> there's um, sort of a, a a common pattern to see like mud cracking, and th the answer is kind of two part because on one hand, yes, mud does that on its own, but also a lot of the time, why it does that is because there are biofilms in the surface. So it's not just this one case that we saw happen to be that way. It's quite common for biofilms to be in the surface of all kinds of environments, sandy environments, mud environments, um, even like marshy deposits and things like that. But a biofilm is basically when there's usually a photosynthesizing microbe that grows in a very thin film on the surface of whatever that is, mud or sand. and and many of these um, bacteria, even though they're single-celled organisms, they kind of clump together in these strands, these like filaments. And so they form a sort of a fibrous mesh that is a bit more cohesive than just the individual mud or silt grains or sand mm -hmm. grains on their own. And so, so within that filament mesh, there's all those grains are embedded. Yeah. So they kind of make a cohesive mesh of their cells, but holding together those mud granules at the same time. Right. And so they form a layer and then as they live and die and the new ones sort of grow on the surface of those, the dead ones underneath now are just a bunch of organic material that's covered up by the new layer that's on top of them. So they can't photosynthesize anymore and they die. But now there's a bunch of rich organic material right there. And 
from underneath, you have things like reduced iron and sulfide in the water from the anoxic layers seeping up. And the, there's organisms right in this environment that basically can use um, different compounds that are coming up from underneath and also the organic material from the other layer of the photosynthesizing organisms. And you get a rich environment for non-photosynthetic organisms to live right underneath the layer of photosynthesizing organisms. So you get a... Um, a physical layer that you can actually visibly see where you can see sort of like a green coat on the surface and then underneath usually a different color like iron oxide so it might look orange um, sometimes the microbes themselves are purple so you might see like a pink or purple layer right underneath the green layer interesting sometimes and the green layer is usually that kind of like really light pale green like cyanobacteria green yeah pale yeah. green almost looks brown even sometimes yeah, but it's like kind a, of olivey like a pale olive yeah exactly yeah. so you have that like greenish layer on the top and then a different color underneath again usually either iron oxide color like rusty or a purple layer because sometimes it's purple bacteria um, or it could even be sometimes you skip straight to the black like sulfide um, iron compound that we were talking about before usually that that usually there's a mid layer before you get to the black mud underneath but yeah you can see these visible layers build up and when you're talking about layers it's important to note that this is like maybe half a centimeter thick that you're talking about most like, of the time uh, on this mud particularly where we were yeah, yeah yeah and most of the time that's the case and you have to know to like you're not going to just be strolling around and be like oh look at those like zones you have to kind of like be like oh interesting there's sort of um a, a matte look to it like it looks like a, a material that cracked but they're kind of staying together in chunks like in little plates and when you notice that and you're like that's interesting it looks very cohesive you go up to it and if you break it and look closely you would see these striations in the mat and the cohesiveness is created by the by by the by all the cells like living right. together and they're making it like they're kind of sticking to each other and again those cyanobacteria they like they form fibers that like felt, you know, like wool felt, like they kind of like get all interwoven and, and form a mat that's literally like a felted mat and it sticks together. And then... But because they're single cell organisms, it also breaks apart easily. Like you can you can crack it on your own. It's not like it's like a living mat, like, like a root system, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, for like this, compared to the cells, like they they're in their world it's very cohesive but like compared to the force that we can break stuff it's not that strong right okay. you can cut through them but they're remark for like compared to how tiny they are it's remarkably cohesive if you think about single individual cells forming in these like strand clumps to be able to then like hold together an entire chunk of clay you know we were picking up pieces that were like this big around right yeah um like the size of your hand yeah and so like that's a pretty solid microbial mat right there. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, wild. And it's neat because so where we were, we they were pretty thin, but some places these mats can get really thick because that process doesn't have to stop, right? As soon as you've kind of grown a layer, like the new my the new photosynthesizers are already growing a new layer on top of the old one, and as the old one is buried deeper and deeper, then it gets used by various com like various other organisms doing different reactions with different compounds in that layer. 
as it it doesn't physically move down, but it kind of as you add more layers up, it's now deeper than it was before. Right. And so as it gets deeper, it goes through different chemical stages. And so you can just keep burying, uh, building layers and layers of these mats up and the old layers are like forming the basis of these mounds. And so in some places you can actually get these like large mounds that form that are quite tall. Um, like you can see them, like they're many feet tall because these mats just keep adding layers and layers and layers on top. And then the, the, the layers at the base, they are so compressed. And after they're used up for a long enough time, they kind of solidify into like mineral structures that form these kind of like solid rock like structures that over time get bigger and bigger and you get these like pillars that can kind of grow because these microbes are just layering up and they just keep going and that process keeps repeating photosynthesizers make biomass that biomass gets buried or other organisms underneath use that biomass in a different way and then it gets buried further and then different set of organisms use it in yet another way and you just keep going through this chemical chain. And is this what makes like mud flats and tidal areas such great carbon stores? It can be a big part of that, yeah. Um, so the, the biomass that accumulates um, as it gets buried, um, it doesn't necessarily degrade as quickly and a lot of there's varying perspectives on this, but it, generally the trend is that um, when you take away the oxygen, things don't decompose as quickly. And so you get a lot of the biomass that either grows as cyanobacteria or just biomass that washes in from somewhere else, like sticks and twigs and other bits and pieces get buried in this anoxic mud and they don't degrade as much as they would if they were like sitting in soil that was exposed to the oxygen. Um, and then, yeah, that carbon stays there instead of getting re-released right. as CO2. We also went over to some mud here and you took out your pocket knife <laughs> and you cut a lovely looking uh, brownie slice of mud. Yeah. Um, tell me about that. What did we see in that? Yeah, Good. so where we were, we went down near the water, and there's just like classic mud flat area. Um, there's that chunk of pie. God, yeah, so I'm delicious. Cutting a square into the mud, and I'm doing this because I want to be able to like lift the mud up um, and not disturb those layers. So sometimes if you stick your hand down in, right, you kind of crush everything. Yeah, you smear it. So I cut a square, and then I'm digging like pretty deep into the mud. And now you can see the different layers in the side of the mud. And so on the very surface, layer, you've got this like brownish green color, which is indicative of photosynthesizers, sort of like um, diatoms or other cyanobacteria in the surface. And then there's a little strip of iron down the side or sort of down the middle. So that strip of iron is where some burrowing animal sort of like dug down into the mud. And when it did that, it brought a bunch of oxygen or gave a way for oxygen to get deep into the mud. And when that oxygen gets down in there, the other microbes that oxidize iron, the, the otherwise black material around it, they start that reaction of oxidizing the iron and creating this rusty pocket. 
Um, and then I just peeled away more to like look at another area of it. And here you can see this clam that had burrowed into the mud. And as it burrowed into the mud, you create a little pocket of oxygen again. And right above it, you can see an oxidized iron patch again where the oxygen was brought into the mud. And then below that, it was all just like still like thick and black. Yeah. So below that, all the mud is that black color. And if you could smell it, it's got that kind of like low tide eggy smell, which is sulfide. Um, again, from that iron sulfide compound, that black color that's deep in the mud there. Wild. It's so cool. Yeah. And it's everywhere. It's like literally everywhere. All Every time you go to the beach, to anywhere where there's mud flats, to anytime you pass a pond or um, a marshy area, you'll see different versions of the same patterns. Iron, sulfur, um, goopy organic matter. So there's this, um, there's this really cool thing from the ancient rock record, um, that are called banded iron formations and they're old geological formations of like quite literally as there's, as I described, it's like layers of iron that are like banded iron layers in the rock record. And, um, for a while there's sort of been like some debate about how those came to be. And the, the general idea is that those are the first signs of, um, well, they're believed to be the first signs of oxygen, uh, the emergence of oxygenic photosynthesis, a photosynthesis that could produce oxygen. And they believed that that was, um, sort of creating these iron deposits that was otherwise dissolved iron floating in the water. And then the oxygen made some of that iron turn to rust and settle out into layers of, of rust that then got metamorphosed and turned into these iron formations. But then this new evidence came out fairly recently from an, another um, set of researchers working on this project that that might have actually been the product of photosynthesis of organisms that could use iron and light energy and oxidize iron without oxygen by using the energy from the light. And so they could be sort of using the dissolved iron that was floating around in the water, the energy from the light, making a chemical reaction happen and producing rust without the use of oxygen at all. And then that these rusty bits, like I was talking about before, they don't, they don't stay dissolved. They settle out. Um, and so you get, you settle out of a layer of deposited iron that then gets like crushed and metamorphosed and over long periods of geological time you t they turn into these bands of iron in the hmm. rock record that's crazy it's so cool all of this is just blowing my friggin mind <laughs> i mean they're just it's just really i think it's really neat and once you start realizing all the ways that microbes are like mediating the chemistry around us all the time you start to realize like you can't you can't even escape it well yeah once you see it, you can't unsee it i know um another really common one you were talking about was the sheen that you sometimes see on stagnant ponds and bogs yeah that one's one of my favorites um because it's just like everyone's seen it and knows kind of what i'm talking about except never even really thought about why that or what that is or what's happening there kind of looks like an oil spill we all usually assume it's an oil spill that's what i always thought it was when i was a kid 
Totally. I mean, it looks just like that. And if you're out somewhere very far away from where there should be an oil spill and you see in the pond like this metallic sheen on the surface, you're usually your thought is like, who put oil out here? Why? You know, what is this? Where did it come from? It's almost always bacterial. And there's two different ways, like two different things that could be happening that create that metallic sheen. It could be um, bacteria just growing in colonies and they have oil in them. Like they're the actual, like outside of a bacterial cell is oily. Like the out, the membrane of a cell is oil basically. So if you have enough cells, you can kind of get a natural oil slick. But when that happens, if you stir it or poke it, it it swirls like oil, you know, it has the same, it looks just like oil. Like it, yeah, it doesn't, doesn't mix with the water and it kind of stays separate. Yeah. And it makes those like swirly liquid patterns. Yeah. Like the really pretty kind of like a kaleidoscopy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But sometimes if you see a metallic sheen, and this is actually more commonly what it is, if you poke it and maybe you've already seen this, maybe you've already experienced this, you poke it and it breaks up into little chunks like little plates? Like little plates. And it forms these little fragments. And we're going to... I have a little video clip of this where we were looking at it. So we'll, we'll put this in the video. But it forms these little fragments that sort of like um, float around on the surface of the water. And they are not fluid. Like they're not like oil at all. What you're actually seeing is a thin, very thin layer of solid metal. Manganese and iron mixed together that have been reduced by microbes. So the microbes have like used those metals in their metabolisms and turned, changed their chemical form and they form these solid layers, but because they form them so individually, so it's not like a solid chunk of metal that would sink to the bottom, is these individual little, um, one atom at a time, you know, the reaction happens really, really, individual small pieces they can form these sheets on the surface of the water that actually float and they form this like because of like surface tension on the water yeah exactly and so it's just like a one cell kind of thick yeah not I mean, it's cell, not cell like, but yeah, yeah, yeah it's like a very incredibly thin layer of metal and that's why it has this shiny metallic sheen because it's metal it's a literal layer of metal on the surface of the water that is the product of microbial metabolisms producing these metal compounds and they accumulate and usually they accumulate somewhere like in a pond or or like where water is like seeping out of the groundwater, you know, because that's where those reduced metals are coming from, right? And so as those... So stagnant water, not really moving water. Yeah, it's usually like stagnant water of mm -hmm. some kind. And again, most of the time it's like a little puddle somewhere. I see this a lot, um, like when I go walking down by the river where the edge of the riverbank and there's if there's water like seeping out of the side of the... Um, like groundwater that's seeping out of the side of where the river bank has kind of exposed it, you'll see these little seeps will have these metallic sheen kind of accumulating in puddles and, and other areas nearby. And it's just like, it's so cool when you really, when you know what that is. And then you, the next time you see it, you're like, oh my gosh, this is that thing that's happening. And that means that there's microbes here doing this reaction. And 
I don't know. I get so excited about it every time. <laughs> like, people who go hiking with me now are like, oh, Julia, look, it's the, it's the shiny puddle again. That's <laughs> yeah. so funny. <laughs> yeah. That's really cool. I think so. I mean, that's fun. Like going on hikes like this is how this whole nerdy about nature thing started because I would just like talk my ear off to friends about plants and trees. But to, yeah, to be nerdy about nerdy about bio, <laughs> yeah, about microbes. Nerdy about microbes. I mean, I'm trying to sway the, the podcast <laughs> yeah. that way as much as I can. Yeah. Doing a fairly <laughs> good job at it at this point. I guess that's like for me. I, obviously, I I actually started out with like plants as well. I was a forest ecologist at first and then kind of like got sucked into the microbe world um but that's now how i see it is like everywhere i go there's like microbes everywhere doing something really cool and they're underlying like everything we see whether it's the like yummy smelling dirt that's like decaying leaf matter or if it's like the goopy swampy bits of like the ugly gross parts that nobody wants to step in to me now i'm like oh my gosh this is beautiful it's so alive it's full of like all these really cool chemical reactions that are like recycling nutrients and like on the single cell organism level which is like so small so it's small. like so crazy to fathom that yeah they're tiny and they're everywhere and it's like it makes you realize that everything is alive like all of the surfaces, even the surface of another living thing, like this plant is probably coated in bacteria and different like tiny organisms that are making use of the materials on the outside of that cell or sorry, the outside of that, of those tissues. Um, or like the rotting log that I was talking about before, or the decaying leaf that's sitting in a bog or the depths of the very deepest parts of that swamp like every surface and every part of that is covered in tiny little organisms that are cranking away just doing all these little chemical reactions and it's all alive all the time or even on our skin like you look down on like our the, skin the, in the, our guts yeah the colonies of microbes that like exist purely on our skin and everybody's is different and when you shake hands with somebody you transfer microbes yeah and there's usually like a little mini war that rages <laughs> on the palms of your hands and usually your native colonies on your hands are strong enough to like you know fight off any of these invasive <laughs> microbes from the other person's hand but yep. that happens like all the time like everything we touch it's like there's all the time constantly going on yeah that's crazy yeah so this leads me to um, my my kind of last big question that I thought about as we were walking over here. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to pose it to you very bluntly. What is life? Oh, geez. What is life? <laughs> Do you want me to answer that scientifically or like yeah, more like... Yeah, I mean because... <laughs> because like... Uh, and we, we alluded to this like a little bit the other night we were talking about it. Like all of these processes... Yeah. are happening around us, but they're so foreign to what we consider life to be when we think about life, especially in the wake of climate change. We're like, okay, mm -hmm. like theoretically in the next hundred years, like this planet could be inhospitable to 99% uh, of life as we know it on this planet. Yeah. What is that 1% of life? Like, yeah. Well, that, that statistic is always a, yeah. is like a bias away from microbes because it depends on how you quantify life. Like, right. Almost all the life we know of and like interact with, yeah, not going to be doing so great. And that's a huge deal. Like I'm not going to undermine that just because some microbes are going to do well. I'm happy the microbes are probably going to do well. But 
Um, yeah, like if you were to quantify it as far as like like mass on the planet goes, it's much smaller than one percent is going to survive, or even species levels. It's like, do you think? Um, I mean, think about like all the mass of like all the humans, all the trees, all yeah. the things. Like, if all of that dies, the one percent that survives is going to be so much smaller than one percent. Like, it's going to be. I'm gonna find, I'm gonna dig it up because I'm I don't want to quote it and get the number yeah. wrong. There's actually a remarkable amount of biomasses in microbes because they're everywhere. Like they're very tiny, but they're like quite literally everything. everywhere. Yeah. So like you take seawater, for example, you take a single milliliter of seawater that's like about that big volume. There's about a million it's cells. About the size of your pinky nail. There's yeah. about a million cells. Really? Yeah. Plus or minus, depending on if you're in the surface water or deeper down. And those are individual organisms. Yeah. That's crazy. And like in that tiny volume, right? There's more microbial cells on the planet than there are stars in the universe. Whoa. In the known universe. Yeah. In the known universe. There's Far more. out. Yeah. That's like infinite. <laughs> That's like space. Yeah, but you start thinking on orders of magnitude at yeah. that level. And there's more, the estimates for the number, like, because you can, based on how many we know are in what type of environment and we know how big, what volume those environments take up on the earth, you know, like surface seawater, lower parts of the seawater and the sediments, we can kind of estimate roughly how many cells there probably are in each of these places. And you add it all up and you are in such a large order of magnitude that it's, beyond the estimates for the number of stars in the known universe that's crazy yeah so i don't remember the exact biomass number but there's there's actually an impressive um appreciable amount of the living matter on this planet is microbes and that has important implications for like carbon capture and um that's why they can have such a big impact on the planet even though they're so tiny there's so many of them that if they start doing a little bit more of this process than that process they can shift the whole balance on the planet because they make up such a massive part of the living cycle like the living biomass on the, on earth and a, a big part of the changes that are happening and how that affects life is that all of the bigger things that we think of as life, typically, like you and me and animals and plants and stuff like that, um, we're pretty slow. Like we're pretty slow to evolve and reproduce and change over time, you know? And adapt. And it, well, that's... Uh, accept that's the... new ideas, learn... <laughs> Okay, even not even yeah, just, us learning within one lifetime. I mean, even multiple lifetimes. Totally. It takes us a while to catch on to things. Yeah. And so the problem is the the speed of change that is happening um, in the the Earth's climate compared to the speed of change at which us larger organisms can keep up with that. And microbes are smaller and faster, and they do way more things. And there's a lot more of them. And so as the environment changes on rapid timescales, microbes can keep up with that a bit more, right? And that whole idea of like everything is everywhere, right? And they just kind of like start doing their thing when it's advantageous for them to do it. They are more likely going as a whole, like they, there's more diversity within microbes than there is within animals. So like there's not a single group of microbes that are necessarily going to do better or worse than all the others. But as a whole, microorganisms are like, better set up to adapt to those changes and, and keep going. And so like in that sense, life will prevail mm -hmm. 
you know, the planet's not going to die in the sense of like all, nothing will live. Yeah. yeah. But the type of life that we will see will look very different from what we think of as the majority of what we think of as the living planet will probably not do well with most of the changes that are projected to be happening. And so in that sense, yes, they are alive. They are living. I'm, I'm tiptoeing around the question you asked me of what is life, but microbes are living and that version of life will be able to keep up. It's, it has, it has kept up through other massive changes on the climate scale throughout time. But the way that life looks is indistinguished or not uh, unidentifiable to what mm -hmm. we would think of as our living planet. Mm -hmm. This is kind of morbid, but I kind of find peace in that. Yeah. And knowing that like the 1% survives is going to be like those funky microbes that are able to breathe sulfur and metals and not like the 1% who think they're going to fly to another planet. <laughs> <laughs> like if we're all going to die, at least like that 1% is included with like the 99% of the rest of everything else, yeah. you know, like yeah. get on those little microbes. I, I do too. And it's, it's almost weird because being a climate scientist, it's tragic. Like it's really difficult to yeah. think every day about the stuff that I study and write about and like what's going to happen. But there is some comfort knowing that it's like it's like they're bigger than us even though they're definitely not like they're physically much smaller than us but like they just have a capacity that is so far beyond us and it's it's a refreshing humbling feeling of like we live our lives as these humans that think we're so on top of everything and like have such amazing capacities to do stuff but we're pretty fragile as like an entity and these microbes are just microbes as a whole are just so far advanced which is again so funny because they're so simple they're tiny and simple and yet they're like bigger and more advanced than us in so many ways yeah that's pretty cool yeah that's a great way to wrap it up okay. um i did I, I wanted to i don't know if you want to talk about it, but you when we talked about life the other night you said that like there were scientists working on like creating new forms of life um as a way, going back to like the 1% of the yeah, world yeah. trying to go to new planets, um, looking into space, like when we're trying to identify life on other planets. Yeah. Uh, tell me a little bit about that because that's pretty cool. Yeah. So crazy. Like, Mind-blowing. When you're thinking about microbes, it starts to bring up this question of like what even is alive because they are so close to the boundary. They are so tiny and they interact with things that we don't consider living and they are kind of the interface. I like to think of them as like the interface between the non-living world and what we think of as the living world. And they are these translators, you know, they break down compounds that are non-living and they can transform them into biological molecules and, um, and, and turn them into things that we think of as living and then create the base of the food web for these other things that are more identifiably like living organisms. And so when you study them, you really have to grapple with this question of like, what is the boundary? Where are you alive and no longer alive? Mm -hmm. When are you alive and when are you just like the chemical process of iron oxidizing on its own? Like Exactly. Yeah. And when, and, and then, when you study the emergence of life, you are also a microbiologist because they were the first 
things that are recognizably living that emerged out of the primordial soup or whatever, you know what I mean? And so, um, the, the bare minimum of what it takes to be alive is an interesting question and there's no set definition for it. There's lots of people have attempted to come up with definitions. There's this paper that sort of attempts to summarize. There's over a hundred different definitions of life and they attempt to look at the common themes in these definitions. And you, you get down to something like, usually it comes down to something like the ability to reproduce and and, and like and make additional copies of yourself, but that doesn't fully work because certain things can reproduce that aren't alive. So like um, crystals, crystals structures, they reproduce themselves, right? Like if you have a crystal in um, solution with other atoms, those crystals can stick onto it and they grow, right? So they can grow and reproduce, but they're not alive. At least we don't typically think of them as being alive. Um, then sometimes you think of like, I, I mean, what, like, what would your gut reaction be? Like, what would, how would you define life? Like, what would you think makes something alive? Like sometimes people say like the ability to carry out a chemical reaction or to like for a chemical reaction to happen. But then there's the problem is there's lots of places where chemical reactions happen that we don't typically think of them as being alive. Like you said, like iron oxidizing on its own or something like that. Well, it's like really easy to start like higher level and be like from an anthropomorphic perspective, be like, oh, like uh, to be able to have a conscience and think. And they're like, okay, lower down. Oh, breathe and, and eat things. Okay, lower down. Um, you know, just breathe in general and then like lower. So like, and, and then you get down to it and like, yeah, it is these like chemical reactions taking place. And then you get down to like the literally like the smallest particles. And it's like, where does life begin? Like, what is life? Yeah. That's what I mean. Like, I don't know how to answer that. Well, like, most I, people don't. And that's... I'm having trouble wrapping my head around <laughs> this concept. Well, and that's the really cool thing is like, we all think we, we all have a sense of it. We all know when we're like, interacting with an, an animal that's alive we can sense life you yeah. know we're like okay this thing is alive and then if you're like mouse if you have a pet mouse and it dies you like you can sense that something has changed and it's not alive so we all have a sense of life and thinking we you know can put our finger on it but it's really incredibly hard to define at that boundary when you're on the tipping point and so these that paper you're talking about these scientists um were playing around with this idea of what is life? How simple can we get? Um, and yet still produce some of the things that we associate with life. And the way they tried to do that was they created cells, but they're, um, they're cells only in the sense that they're like they're li a literal cell, like it's a physical bubble. And the rules for their little game was they can't use any compounds that are normally involved in life as we know it so like we're we are composed of like carbohydrates and lipids and nucleic acids like dna and um proteins things like that right these are all kinds of compounds that make up the life we know of and so they said okay we're not going to use any kind of compound that's currently known to be involved with life so they used other types of compounds that could form bubble like little like form 
connected mats and, and make a membrane and make a little bubble. And they, they call them like little proto cells basically. And then they created different versions of them and they, um, they created like a, 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 I don't want to call it like fake photosynthesis, but like they created a way for like some of them to be able to reproduce faster if they had light but it's not using photosynthesis. It's not using any of the things that exist in life known photosynthesis. It's like an artificial created version of that. Wild. Okay. So they have this like little system set up where they've got like, um, some of these like little cells that can just reproduce on their own. And then some that can reproduce faster when there's light and they grow them they grow because they do grow. It's all funny. They're like, can I use that word for it? Like, are they growing? Cause are they alive? And they, they have them in a, like a beaker and then they shine light on it and they can show that selection happens. So the ones that can use light, they do better than the other ones. They reproduce more, they reproduce faster and the community changes over time to be dominated by these little cells that have light and they're not like the scientists are not interfering with that they're just letting it play out they set up the they set up the conditions but then they just let it go on its own and it plays out all of the the patterns that we associate with life they can reproduce all of those scenarios and so these things are reproducing over time with the ability to sort of mutate and like change over time. And they, some of them have an advantage over others. So then there's an opportunity for selection. And so you have natural selection occurring. And so you have basically all of the different properties that you typically would build into the definition of life can happen with these things that are not alive by our typical definition of the compounds involved in life but i guess they're alive <laughs> wow <laughs> okay yeah well thank you for thoroughly blowing my mind yeah um, i think it's just fun to think about because you know you're yeah. like well okay so what do i even know then it what? gets down to like the root of sheer existence which is crazy it's yeah. just difficult to, to fathom and to think about and if you want to think about like you know are we alone on the planet is there other life elsewhere like what is life in that sense in that really high level sense you have to start expanding your definition of what you're even trying to look for somewhere else you know if we went to another planet when we get super fast time travel or whatever or travel where we can go fast enough to get there and we get to another potentially habitable planet what are how are we going to know if we found life it's probably going to be microbial most of the time and so what signs are we looking for to say life is happening here you know and you're probably looking for some of these things like chemical reactions that wouldn't happen on their own or wouldn't happen as quickly being accelerated or chemical reactions that maybe shouldn't go backwards there's evidence that something is making them happen the opposite way or processes that are not favorable to happen chemically but when they're in the presence of light and like light energy is getting maybe used to make a non-favorable reaction happen anyway these are all things that 
would probably indicate something is alive in those places, making those things happen. But unless we really know what is the core of those properties that make something alive, then we don't know what we're looking for when we go consider it. Right. And that was kind of the the basis of that experiment. Yeah. Just to kind of like understand the different forms or ways in which life could exist. Yeah. It was kind of to test this idea of like, can all of the things that we associate with life happen in a system that doesn't involve anything made up of what we think life is made up of? Can you produce the the image of life in, in another system? And then it seems like they can, which then really expands our idea of like, what does it mean to be alive to look for life? <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> I, uh, yeah. This is why microbes are so cool. Yeah. They just make you think really deep about some of these really cool big picture questions. Yeah, I have nothing more to add. <laughs> um, well, it's been an honor to come back on here and yeah, talk about microbes again. this has been again. great. Thanks for coming out. Um, glad my legs are all warpy and bumpy from all the skeeters. And mine are covered in mud from our yeah. little mud escapator. It, it was well worth, well worth it. So glad we did that. Thanks for coming out. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hot dang, what a wild world we live in. You know, we're so used to only looking at the big things in the world relative to us, things that we can touch and see, so it's always awesome to hear about how all these tiny processes we can't see influences the things that we can. Now, I totally forgot to mention this in person with her, but for every podcast episode, I make a donation to a nonprofit or cause of my guest's choice, and Julia chose to give her donation to the Last Stand Legal Defense Fund. As you may or may not be aware, there is an ongoing battle here in British Columbia to protect the last remaining stands of old growth forests from being logged, with remaining high productivity old growth forest stands down to less than 1% of the forest across the entire province, and it's still actively being logged on public land for private profits. It's, It's absolutely insane. So, the Ferry Creek Blockade is a group of First Nations and land defenders dedicated to stopping this logging from occurring in the southern part of Vancouver Island, and the Last Stand Legal Defense Fund helps provide legal support and representation to those who have been arrested for taking a stand here. It's a great cause, and I'm stoked to help support it, and you can too by checking out the link to their fundraiser campaign I'll provide in the show notes down below. These donations are made possible thanks to support from those of you who support this project on Patreon, as well as support from sponsors of the show like Hoka and their rad Anacapa 2 hiking shoes. If you're enjoying this podcast and all the fun little educational videos I make all over social media, you can help support their production by becoming a Patreon supporter for as little as a dollar a month or more at patreon.com slash nerdyaboutnature, or by making a one-time donation or getting some sweet Nerdy About Nature merch at nerdyaboutnature.com. All of this support goes into giving me the stability to continue putting time, energy, resources, and research into all these various topics to continue making content that aims to educate, inspire, and shape a new future for tomorrow. So if you're enjoying it, then I would really appreciate your support so that I can keep on doing it. Either way, I am absolutely stoked that you're all here engaging and learning. So thank you so much for tuning into this episode and stay tuned for some more coming soon. Cheers. This episode of the Nerdy About Nature podchat series was produced by me, Ross Reed, and made possible with support from individuals like yourself. For ways to support this project and to learn more, check out nerdyaboutnature.com or at nerdyaboutnature on your favorite social platform.